the free peoples of the world look to us for support in maintaining their freedoms. If we falter in our leadership, we may endanger the peace of the world, and we shall surely endanger the welfare of this nation. Welcome to episode five of Achieve Great Things. This week's guest is Mike Breen, who's going to talk to us a little bit about um, communicating about national security, the issue of fear and communications. And he brings up a really interesting point of that you have to acknowledge the fears of, of the people you're trying to communicate with and instead of trying to counteract it and acknowledging where people are, you can earn the right to be aspirational, which I thought was pretty interesting. We really hope you guys are enjoying this podcast so far. Please send us comments, thoughts, feedback to podcast at hadaway.com. Subscribe on iTunes. Leave us a review. Thanks for listening. I'm here with Mike Breen, who's the president and CEO of the Truman Center and the Truman National Security Project. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, RJ. It's good to see you. Mike and I are uh, are friends, and we were able to catch up um, after hours in his office, and we were actually able to, to chat a little bit and, and have a beer, and it's a good... Good way to catch up. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate it. You bet, man. It's good to see you, especially with the twins. I'm glad you're awake. I'm awake. I'm awake. <laughs> Hang for, in there, for man. Now. I mean, you've had a, a really interesting career. And for anyone who knows anything about you, they know that you, you served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you're a lawyer. Before this sort of whole refugee crisis slash conversation, whatever it is, started. Whatever it is. <laughs> you've been involved with that for a long time as the co-founder of the International Refugee Assistance Project. Um, so you have some perspective on that, but you also have been sort of on the front lines of national security for a while now. As you know, this podcast is aimed at helping communicators um, think about you know what they can do to to do their jobs more effectively. So let's I guess let's start think about it from a national security perspective, and just talk about the election because it's hard to talk about anything in the context of communications in our space without starting there. Um, from a national security perspective, what did you learn from the election about communications? Yeah. <laughs> how much time do we have? <laughs> how much time do we have and how much beer is there in the There's fridge? a lot of beer and a lot of time. Um, you know, from a communications perspective, I think the kind of notable thing about what we do here at Truman and, and kind of my entire life uh, has been that, you know, I spent a lot of time and we, we here at Truman spent a lot of time talking to people about uh, issues that are scary uh, issues that really, really provoke a lot of fear, and a lot of times the people we're talking to are afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'd say two things about the election. I'd, I'd say first of all, it, this just reinforces something that that it's really hard for a lot of of experts and a lot of wonks, um, even President Obama, who's who's an incredible communicator, to get around is that if someone is afraid, if someone is experiencing fear. You cannot attempt, or I would not advise attempting, <laughs> to explain to them using facts and figures why they should not be afraid. Now, we do this with terrorism all the time. So we'll, we'll put up pie charts telling people, you know, statistically, you're much more likely to be killed by a shark that's been struck by lightning than you are to be killed by an ISIS terrorist. This is absolutely true, and it does nothing to assuage yeah, fear. It does nothing. Uh, what it actually does is, is make the person saying it sound out of touch to the person who's afraid. Um, Imagine you're sitting in your office, mm-hmm. and uh, you know you're working on your computer, mm-hmm. and the fire alarm goes off. And 
you don't know anything else except that the fire alarm in your building's going off. And you think you might smell a little bit of smoke. Mm-hmm. And somebody in your office, you know, one of your coworkers would walk up to you and say, you know, maybe we should get out of here. And they say, well, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because statistically, <laughs> this is probably a fire drill. <laughs> right. And even if it isn't, the building is made out of concrete blocks and you know, their flashpoint is pretty high. They won't burn easily. Mm-hmm. So we probably have time to finish a few emails, even if the fire is real. That person sounds absolutely insane to you yep. if you're afraid. Uh, but frequently make the mistake of, of trying to communicate that way. So I think that's one big lesson is you know, don't, don't negate the emotional state mm-hmm. of the person you're talking mm-hmm. to, especially if they're afraid. Uh, fear really makes it difficult for people to, to process information uh, rationally. Yep. Your reptile brain, your limbic system takes over, mm-hmm. and, and you're, you're just not hearing the words that come out of somebody's mouth yep. often. And then I'd say the second thing we learned is you know, those of us who believe that the United States needs to play a leadership role in the world mm-hmm. because it makes us all safer. Um, it's the 100th anniversary of the U.S. entry into World War I this year. I don't think it's any accident that we saw Brexit and the election of Trump mm-hmm. just as the generation that fought World War II mm-hmm. has passed on. Mm-hmm. The living memory in our society of what happens when the United States is not engaged in the world in maintaining international institutions and alliances. Yep. We fought two massive wars. After World War I, we said, you know, an entire generation died in the trenches of Europe. We said, never again. Yep. And yet it happened again. Uh, within a very short period of time, and then World War II happens, the most destructive, catastrophic conflict in human history, and we say, no, seriously, never yeah. again. Yeah. And we, we created the United Nations and NATO and the international financial system and a million other things, yeah. um, all designed to prevent that kind of a bloodletting. 350,000 Americans dead on the battlefield in four and a half years. Mm-hmm. And now we seem to have made a decision here in the United States and in England too and in mm-hmm. other places around the world that we don't really need that anymore. Yeah. And and that's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. But the living memory is lost. And I, I think that's kind of on, on us in a way. We have not communicated the value proposition. Mm-hmm. When we talk about American global leadership, American leadership in the world, I mean, Truman's got a chapter in Ohio. You mm-hmm. go to Dayton, you ask somebody about American global leadership. In the 15 years since 9-11, what's that gotten them? Yeah. I lost my job. And my cousin got shot in Iraq, and I have nothing to show for it. Yeah. So I understand right. why people rebelled against that mm-hmm. uh, so strongly. Uh, but ultimately, that is a communications problem because what peace and prosperity does exist in every community across the country mm-hmm. is built on the foundation of that post-1945, post-World War II project. But we take it for granted now. Yeah, and we're... You know, those of us on the progressive side probably don't do the best job of making that argument in a way that that does appeal to people's values and and hopes and aspirations. Let's go back to the fear thing for a second, because um, I think one side of the political aisle uses fear to its advantage and the other side doesn't. So what you know, the example of terrorism and um, people being afraid is a good one. And at this point, people are afraid of lots of stuff. They're afraid of losing their health care. They're afraid right. of losing their job. They're afraid. People are people are feeling insecure and, and afraid. But um, progressives don't really latch on to that fear, right? Because right. we're sort of constantly pushing for the for the positive. So what's the role of kind of leveraging that, you know, to, to look cynically at it from a communications perspective? Is that something we should be 
thinking more about like tapping into that or should we continue to try and counter it with you know here's how our positive ideas are going to overcome your fear i think it's both yeah um i i think i am not advocating and, and would never advocate for a politics of fear yeah uh, I think one of the other things that this election showed us um, on the left is that progressives, progressive voters, mm-hmm. are not motivated by fear. Yeah, they don't. They don't go to the ballot box in large numbers. They That's don't, true. They don't go to that voting booth because they're against something. They want to be for something higher. Um, so there's. I understand there's a reluctance among a lot of a lot of progressives and a lot of people who want to lead in a values-based, affirmative, visionary mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. to embrace fear. And I'm not suggesting that we do. I'm suggesting that we acknowledge it. Yep. Uh, I think there's a two-step process we have to use on security issues. Mm-hmm. The first is to acknowledge the fear and make a human connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to use a great example um, that we use a lot in our own training at Truman, um, I mean, I know how incredibly unlikely, I mean, I've, I've done counterterrorism work and national security work for mm-hmm. a lot of my life. Yep. I, I have fought terrorists myself. <laughs> yep. I know how unlikely it is, <laughs> right. uh, you know, that a, re- a retiree in Peoria is going to die at the hands of an ISIS fighter. Mm-hmm. However, um, if that person says to me, mm-hmm. I'm really afraid mm-hmm. of terrorism, yep. uh, my response is not to say, well, you shouldn't be because X, Y, and Z. My yep. response is to say, well, you know, I live and work within a two-mile radius of the White House, the largest terrorist target in the world. Mm-hmm. And so I rise and sleep under that same fear that you that you know. You know, I've, I've faced these people on the battlefield, so I know exactly what they can do. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we need to, we, the fear is real. Mm-hmm. And I personally feel that fear. You need know, that personal connection however you can. I'm yep. a father. I worry about my daughter's future. I, you know, she... <laughs> goes to school within five miles of the White House, <laughs> right, right? right? And so in order to to keep her safe, what we need is an approach that is about X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And now you can lay out your policy ideas. Now you can say, we need to leverage diplomacy. We need to leverage uh, our moral leadership. We need to invest in education and healthcare in the world so people have opportunities beyond just joining a terrorist organization. We need to think about climate change because climate change makes terrorism more likely. I can say all these things mm-hmm. now. Because I don't sound like an alien to that scared yeah. woman. Yeah. So you, you you have to earn the right to be aspirational. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. That's and, a really and, good and you point. do that by meeting people where they are. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something we can do a, a better job of. Um, on on sort of the national security um, topic, we, at, in our work at Hadaway, we talk a lot about changing narratives about different issues. Yeah. To me, the narrative about national security and this might this is not research based this this is my opinion is republicans are good on it they support strong defense they fight to keep us safe democrats always want to cut defense spending and spend it on other stuff mostly related to poor people so how (laughs) paraphrasing (laughs) right but how do we how do how do we change that and how do we make it not um not such a one-sided you know, argument? Is it tapping into those aspirations that you described once you have, you know, acknowledged that it is a real, a real fear and then going into sort of how all these other issues are affected and how it's just much more complicated than, than it seems? Yeah, I I think, I think answering that it's complicated is probably not such a great idea. Uh, (laughs) You know, I mean, there's always, we're going to come back with nuance and nuance (laughs) will win the day. Yeah. I don't think that's going to work out too well. Point plan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, th- ten points is not enough, RJ. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> we need seventeen points. That's true. With sub points. Yeah. Um, 
no, I, I don't think it's about nuance. I think it's really about, again, kind of a two-step process. Uh, when, when people are looking to leaders on security issues, mm-hmm. um, it's n- it doesn't security doesn't function politically the way that uh, a lot of other issues function. So you and I and everyone else have been to school. Mm-hmm. We can all have an educated conversation about education based on our personal experience. You and I have both been sick before mm-hmm. and taken medicine. Mm-hmm. So is everyone else. Mm-hmm. So we can all talk about healthcare. Very very few people have been to war, have direct experience with national security issues. Yep. Uh, and so when when voters, when citizens look to someone for leadership on those questions, they're really asking themselves, one, is this person somebody who sees the world through the same common sense frame that I do? Mm -hmm. Do they share my values? Do they care about the things I care about? And two, do they have the strength required Mm -hmm. to keep me safe? And that strength requires a couple things. It requires the willingness to acknowledge that threats are real the willingness to take security seriously, the willingness to say evil is a thing that does exist in the world. That's Mm -hmm. often a a hard evolution for progressives to make. It's less hard for me because in a young age in two war zones, I saw some things I can only describe as evil. Yeah. Uh, but, But there's this deep belief that I think is a wonderful thing among all of us to believe that that there's good in everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Mm -hmm. But most most people, when they're worried about a security issue, they also know that inside each, each of us, is, is there's a level of darkness and mm-hmm. that people are capable of some really terrible things. Mm-hmm. So the question is, do you acknowledge that reality? Mm-hmm. And then are you prepared to do something about it? Uh, and so I think there are great progressive answers to security questions that have the great virtue of being factually accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes we talk about, here we, you know, to use a comic book analogy, we kind of compare our approach to the to the more conservative knee-jerk approach you're mm-hmm. talking about spider-man versus the hulk you know, it's, you, <laughs> the, the conservative approach can be we're going to build a gigantic military I mean, this is trump's budget yeah. we're going to build a huge military we're going to slash everything else the government does and we're just going to somehow physically destroy everything that threatens us uh i don't know how many tanks it takes to defeat ebola mm-hmm. right. <laughs> or pandemic disease right uh, or to, to prevent somebody from joining a terrorist organization in the first place. Uh, we need an integrated set of tools to meet these challenges. And there's a very common sense way to describe these things. But again, it starts with taking security seriously. And I, I, I would go back to that as our kind of major Achilles heel. It's mm-hmm. not a policy problem. If mm-hmm. you look at the ads that ran in the 14th cycle, Democrats who were Senate incumbents started to really hammer it on this issue. None of those ads were about policy. They were about ISIS and Ebola are on the rise, and mm-hmm. so-and-so has missed the hearings. They're naive. They don't understand the threat. Policy neutral. Here's a classic liberal with their head in the clouds who doesn't understand this stuff is scary. But you do, common sense American, yeah. and so do I. Vote for someone who's not an idiot, Republican. How do we overcome those challenges? But then also, how do you take advantage of all the people who are excited and fired up and, and energized and mobilized for maybe the first time? Yeah. Those two things are huge. Um, I think... I think we're living in a time where there's, I mean, there's a lot of attention, and rightly so, placed on digital organizing, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of attention, and rightly so, placed on the positive and negative aspects of what social media can and can't do for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, mess in, you, know, you mentioned messengers, and I, I really do think we need to get back to a kind of fundamental politics that is about neighbors, that mm-hmm. is about uh, genuine communities at human scale of people we know and trust. I think especially at a time where half the time you don't even know who you're talking to online and where 
the audiences we're interacting with are just at, at the point where they're very media and marketing savvy and they're mm-hmm. just tired of being micro-targeted and messaged at and being served up candidates that look like, you know, they came out of a, you know, a Britney Spears <laughs> candidate construction <laughs> algorithm. Right? Um, and it's all good training, but yeah. at the end of the day, uh, you know, it makes all, all, all politicians look the same on the stump now. So they're looking, authenticity is the buzzword that gets thrown around. But I think really it's about about genuine human connection that is in place before the political conversation. Who do people trust and listen to in their communities? Mm-hmm. On security issues, that's pretty clear. Uh, you know, if you're wondering who to trust, most Americans are going to listen at the water cooler to the guy who served in uniform. Uh, and so that's a powerful voice in a security conversation yeah. because they have they have the credibility that comes with that. So we look to those people as yeah. messengers. I'd, I'd much rather have, you know, a local guy who's known in the community, uh, who's worn the uniform, talk to his or her neighbors about why some policies make sense and some don't in a very pragmatic way. Yeah. Then have a four-star general fly in and, you know, talk at everybody. <laughs> right. That's something we talked about in a, with another guest is sort of the idea of people are thinking about there's more ways than ever to connect with people, but it's harder to break through, right? Yeah. So going back to how do we engage with people on the ground and maybe taking advantage of things that already exist, whether they're events or um, things that are happening in communities and thinking about organizations that are trying to, you know, advocate for policies on the state or local level, you know, thinking about going to the communities and actually talking to people yeah, <laughs> in person and, and acknowledging their point of view before you start trying to kind of yeah. hammer them over the head with your 10-point plan. That's exactly right. And we got to get back to a politics of basic respect. I mean, even when I'm talking about fear-based communications, it's really what I'm talking about. Yep. Don't disrespect where somebody's coming from. Yeah. Just acknowledge it as real. It's yeah. just as real as where you're coming from and go from there. And I think a lot of what's really exciting right now, in terms of all these new people who are engaged in the process, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, my mom, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who's never been engaged in politics her entire life, you know, and she, she's got the Indivisible Handbook, and she's going to meetings. Mm-hmm. She's going to meetings with people she knows from her community. It's a genuine mm-hmm. community movement mm-hmm. she's part of. She's physically showing up and building strong social ties with people uh, that are about more than politics, that are about real community. That, to me, is where the game is right now. It's, it's not in the abstract national party structures or any of the rest of it. It's, you know, people are finally getting interested in community civics again. Yeah. And that's, that's a game changer. Yeah, and even the, the online fight, like you said, is just, you know, you're going to lose if that's what you're fighting it. That's um, absolutely right. I saw, I know the organization, there's lots of organizations doing cool stuff, but Swing Left is doing interesting, you know, organizing in neighborhoods. There's a meeting in my neighborhood on, on Saturday to talk about the, the closest Swing District and, like, that kind of stuff. I think it's the first time since we've lived in D.C. that stuff like that has happened. So it's yeah. definitely catching on. And people yeah. seem to be excited about it. It's great. And I think what you guys talk about at Hadaway, too, about aspirational communications, mm-hmm. we can't lose sight of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're at a time when I think people feel really beat down and, and really scared, existentially threatened in a lot of ways, and for good reason. Yeah. I mean, with this administration's engaged in some pretty scary things right? that, that do threaten people and their families in pretty powerful ways. But that's the perfect time to be willing to stand up for something higher. I think there's a hunger for that. And mm-hmm. I think that hunger is only going to want to grow. Uh, I mean, if we know one thing about the human spirit, right, it's that everybody wants to be called to be their best self, to be the best version of themselves. Adversity calls that out in people. Yeah. And, and this is a time for that. I think this is a time to ask people to become their best vision of themselves mm-hmm. for themselves and their communities. And we see that we, we see people responding to that call people generating that call, people looking at their neighbors one to the other and saying, we've, 
it, it is time for us to reassert ownership of the country. That's a, there is beauty and there is yeah. incredible power in that. Yeah, that's uh, very powerful. So fear is real and fear is, you, you got to acknowledge it. Uh, but courage is impossible without fear, right? So let's talk a little bit about the work of, of Truman. You guys talk about leaders, ideas, action. I think those are sort of the three big areas of, of work. Yeah. Um, are those all affected by the new political reality we live in? Um, are there things that are sort of business as usual? What's on your um it's on your plans for the for the, for the next couple of years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some things have obviously changed. I think that basic formula of how the organization works is intact. We've always been about growing a nationwide community of people who are, you know, they come out of national security expertise, but they also come out of having served in the military and in the intelligence community. And also, you know, Truman's done, I think, a great job bringing in leaders who, you know, work in the domestic political and advocacy space, you know, leaders who have genuine followership in their communities and who know how to move American democracy in a positive direction and have made their lives about that. So it's a conversation that brings all these pieces together. And it's always been nationwide. Yeah. We have members in something like 48 states right now. That's uh, awesome. That's not easy to do. It yeah. took us about 10 years to get to the point where we have this network. But the way that it has responded uh, in these past few months has been incredible. It's been awe-inspiring. Uh, just after the refugee ban and the, and the Muslim ban came out, I mean, within minutes, members from across the country were showing up at airports. Lawyers were networking with each other. People were calling their elected officials, you know, asking them, some of whom were Truman members, asking them, hey, can you come out here? Can you try to get back and see the Customs and Border Patrol people and get back and see these detainees and put some pressure on it? Calling friends in the media, uh, highlighting veterans who showed up to say, with that extra credibility that comes from, you know, I served this country and this is not what I signed up to defend. <laughs> right. <laughs> Quite the opposite. And so it, it was amazing to see that organic response from this community. Mm -hmm. And it, it was really reassuring to me because what it said was, we talked about values the whole time we were building Truman. Mm -hmm. It's all about values. It's all about worldview. It's all about the, the willingness to stand up when it's hard and fight for what we've collectively mm -hmm. believed together. And this was probably, we've probably never been tested like we've just been tested. This community was overwhelmingly prepared to fight. And I think a lot of communities and movements have seen the same thing. So that idea that leaders, that network of leaders is the basis for everything we do, that very much continues. And then we just look to our members to help us solve big problems. We tee them up, but it's really the members that generate all that intellectual capital and those solutions. And that's what the ideas component is about. And then collectively, we get together to try to make those ideas happen, to make them real in the lives of our neighbors to actually, it's not about white papers, it's about actually improving uh, you know, facts we, on the ground. Can we have more white papers, though? I think what what this country needs right now, RJ, <laughs> it's more 50-page white we papers. We need more white papers. You guys are on the front lines of, of a lot of work, and it's interesting that just the way that you train people, it's exactly the model that we've been talking about, you know, getting people who are authentic and who care and who want to be engaged in their communities in some way and, and, and helping them do that. So... It seems like the work of the organization is definitely more important than ever. I would agree with that. I mean, I think we're, I think we're up against an administration that so badly misunderstands uh, what keeps us safe, how to protect the country, how to make the world more peaceful and prosperous, uh, but also fundamentally misunderstands why this country is strong. This administration seems to believe that American pluralism is a strategic weakness we need to rectify. <laughs> mm -hmm. When in fact, it's the source of the country's dynamism and, and basic strength. That to me, is it's unbelievable that we're having this fight at this point in American history. I mean, what we should be doing is perfecting our democracy and, and making up for the mistakes of the past and 
and having tough conversations that we've deferred for 240 years. And instead, we're fighting on this basic question of whether American life should be about who your parents were or what you choose to become and contribute. But there's a there's a clear right answer on that one. And it's not just about moral good. It's about its strategic value. I mean, if we, we live in a century, I mean, it's an innovation-driven century. Mm-hmm. Like it or not, mm-hmm. uh, ideas trump bullets. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not about who's got the most mm-hmm. soldiers in their army. It's about who's got the intellectual and technological advantage. And societies that prosper and succeed in this century are going to be those that seek and cultivate and lift up the talent from every single corner of their society, regardless of gender and sexual orientation and religion and what side of a border you were born on, (laughs) any of the rest of it, who you pray to. Uh, America's always been on the winning side of that equation. Mm -hmm. And against you know, in competition with countries like China that are that are very much not on that side. Yeah. On, on that side, right. Right? right? It gives us a tremendous advantage. And, and now we have a, uh, an administration that seems to believe somehow uh, that it's a weakness. And it, I, so there's a lot to fight for right now, and there's a lot to stand up and defend. <laughs> there just yeah. is. Maybe on one hand, it's good that we're revisiting the core ideas of America and American democracy, and we all hope it'll. <laughs> end up on the right side of it right like we are yeah. it's going back to like what is america what makes america strong you know yeah and that's a really interesting i didn't think we would be revisiting that yeah i mean it's it's clearly it's a conversation we've never completed you know this country certainly uh has a long way to go before trump had a long way to go you know what we aspire to be you know maybe in some ways the positive result of this will be mm-hmm. uh that the country's going to have to make a decision yeah. ultimately yeah. about you know whether we want to continue to improve american democracy and yeah. you know spread the fruits of democracy to more and more of our own people or whether we want to commit national suicide basically i'm pretty confident we're gonna we're gonna choose right on this yeah uh, i've i mean in my lifetime i've never seen a more active or engaged group of citizens. I mean, yeah. the word citizen means something now that didn't mean a few a few months ago. We, we talk about the rights of citizenship. I think people are starting to understand again that there are responsibilities that come with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we'll let you go after this. I just wanted to ask you one thing about the, the immigration ban because I know, you know, you co-founded the International Refugee Assistance Project. Now this, you know, the refugee ban came and you had an interesting conversation with Tucker Carlson <laughs> on Fox News, yeah. which is always probably fun, I assume. Um, fun is one word for it. Yeah. <laughs> was that a was that more personal for you than, than you know, some of the stu- other stuff that you guys do here? Or was it sort of a natural progression? I, I know you have a personal connection, so I'm just curious about your reaction to that and how you sort of dealt with that. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it is, it is. of course, it's personal to me. Um, I mean, it, you know, some of the points I, I, I tried to make to Tucker, uh, I mean, first of all, the idea that the United States of America is going to decide that, a particular faith is, is, is somehow makes someone a threat. Um, that we have American Customs and Border Patrol agents asking people to what god they pray. Uh, that's not that's not my country. Yeah. Um, so so that I find that pretty deeply offensive yeah. to you know everything I've ever believed in. Beyond that. Um, I mean, what really brings this home for me, I mean, I, I, you know, I spent years in the Middle East first as a soldier and then working with refugees. I've come to know a lot of these families, uh, but I, I'm pretty sure I would not uh, have, would not have had anywhere near the chance that I did have to, to get home from Iraq and mm-hmm. Afghanistan safe and sound if 
Iraqis and Afghans hadn't stood up and, yeah. and, and, and protected me and fought with me as interpreters, um, you know, as allied soldiers and security force members, in a whole host as community leaders mm -hmm. who welcomed me into their homes and, and took tremendous risks to try to improve their country alongside what we were doing and, yeah. and risk their families, took greater risks than I ever did with yeah. far less support. Uh, and I mean, my first tour in Iraq, uh, we had a, a young woman, an interpreter for us. Uh, her name was Wissam. She was 19 years old. And, you know, she was the person that helped us talk to people. She wanted to warn us there was an IED down the road. Yeah. She was the one who made sure we understood. That's, that's life-saving work. And she was murdered by a militia just because she worked with us. You know, and if you ask me, uh, her name belongs up on whatever monument all the rest of our fallen go on. And and so for, for the President of the United States, for my government to say her family isn't welcome because of where they were born, that's just disgusting. So yeah, of course it's personal. You've done a lot of work on, on this issue and, and on the other issues we've talked about, so thank you for all the work you've done. And I know you guys here are hard at work and have been, will continue to be hard at work. So I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. You bet, anytime. Thanks for everything you guys do. Thanks again for tuning in to Achieve Great Things. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes and give us a review there. Um, shoot us an email at podcast at hadaway.com if you have thoughts, suggestions, comments. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week. The free peoples of the world look to us for support in maintaining their freedom. If we falter in our leadership, we may endanger the peace of the world, and we shall surely endanger the welfare of this nation.